Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Continuing with the Alabama Historical Association's commitment to providing remote information during the year of COVID restrictions, Alabama Review Editor Matthew Downs interviewed Dr. Dallas Hanbury about his Alabama Review article, Documenting Slavery at the Local Level, Montgomery, Alabama, a Case Study, that appeared in the July 2020 issue. This interview appeared originally on Facebook, on July 27th, 2020. Well, welcome to another of our conversations with authors of the Alabama Review. I'm Matthew Downs. I am the editor of the Alabama Review. The Alabama Review is a quarterly journal of Alabama history published in cooperation with the University of Mobile and the Alabama Historical Association. We are here with Dr. Dallas Hanberry, whose article, Documenting Slavery at the Local Level, Montgomery, Alabama, a Case Study, it's coming out in the July issue. First, I'll start with a little biographical information for Dr. Hanbury. He is the county archivist for Montgomery County, Alabama. He received his PhD in public history from Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Hanbury has been active in a couple of projects in Montgomery County. First, he wrote part of a grant for Montgomery County to go along with Mississippi State, Miss, and some other groups to get funding from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission to help digitize pre-Civil War records, documenting enslaved people as part of something called the Lantern Project. Dr. Hanbury himself combed through records to help document enslaved people in Montgomery County. He's also worked on the digitization of records at the Montgomery County Archives. He held public classes in preservation. He's even helped host a podcast on how to comb through records to find names of enslaved people. I mentioned all of this to help you understand who Dr. Hanbury is, but also because it seems to me that these two projects come together in your article in July, where you are talking about ways that historians, both lay and professional, can better understand the experience of enslaved people by using local archives, and particularly the holdings um, in Montgomery County. So if it's okay with you, maybe we can start with a real easy question. What kinds of documents might one find at a county archives? Well, it depends on the institution, obviously. Here in Montgomery, we're part of the probate court. So I would say well north of 90% of our records are government created, particularly pertaining to real property records. Think mortgages, deeds, wills, and for the purposes of the Lantern Project, estate files. Because I'm sure many of our audience will know enslaved people were regarded as property and hence in Alabama and other deep south states. The probate court records are full of mentions of enslaved people. One of the sets of records that you just mentioned, that you mentioned in your article, property records in which um, landowners list enslaved people as collateral, which right. sounds horrific to us. But like you're saying, it must have been common in the Deep South. Talk a little bit about how you use those sorts of records or researchers might use them to find out more about enslaved individuals. Well, for, before I get into that, let me just give a shout out to Bonnie Martin, whose work on enslaved people as collateral in the South is really where I even became aware of that. 
I'm not sure if she's affiliated with anybody at the moment, but her work is out there. To your question, so obviously it's pretty tricky to locate enslaved people in the historical record for any significant period of time because, unfortunately, enslaved people are hired out, sold, moved around quite a bit. But it's in going to the probate court records and looking at estate files where enslaved people are listed in inventories in the real property records where they're collateral on loans for land and other enterprises connected to the raising of cotton, it's through using these records that we can begin to locate and follow an enslaved person's life pre-Civil War through the records and sometimes occasionally even making the transition from slavery to freedom. One of the things that's coming through is how difficult some of these documents can be when we are trying to find out about the humanity of enslaved people. Because I would guess that many of them treat enslaved people as unhuman, correct? They're certainly devoid of any humanity, that's for sure. I think as a historian and as scholars, we all have to be careful not to slip into the trap of forgetting that these are, in fact, human beings we're talking about. And that's where, obviously, you combine your research in these records with other sources that help bring that human aspect to it. What I find interesting is that these records are so prevalent, and in many cases, much of the formatting is boilerplate. With no mention of humanity, this is a regular function of probate courts across the state. As a historian, it's pretty powerful to me that government is part of the machinery of slavery. It's there to facilitate the institution. One of the things I thought was really interesting, and you did this in your article, was how you were able to make some better than educated guesses about family connections and community connections. I wonder if you could talk about how you were able to read in some of these documents to see connections between enslaved people that the authors might not have been trying to show. Even though we have this huge body of records pertaining to enslaved people, and they do hint at family connections, sometimes that connection isn't always 100% clear. Uh, we're obviously reading the context closely for clues, but it is a tool. One of the examples I use in the article is a slave owner in Montgomery County passes away just before the Civil War ends, and his estate is an inventory of enslaved people's names. And one of those names we find almost immediately after the war in December of 1865 on a marriage record containing the last name of the owner. Now, slave owners often use the same names over and over again. And we do know that formerly enslaved people sometimes took the names of former owners. So it is a bit of a reach. But the fact is that we can begin to even hint at connections. Mm -hmm. um, some documents are much more explicit, actually, in fact, particularly when estates are being divided. Family connections, particularly between mothers and children, are documented. So family structure is hinted at. One of the points you made earlier that I think is really important for a lot of our listeners who are interested in this is that we should always balance the documents we find in a place like the Montgomery County Archives with context, with these larger histories. Would you mind giving some of the examples of larger histories you use in your article to help balance out looking at these local records, some context that you used? As we all know, there's a wide body of work on all things related to slavery and enslaved people. If you read my article closely, one of the, I think, the sub-themes in there is economic in nature. So some of the works that I that really spoke to me, both as a professional historian and just resonated with me as a work, would be Slavery's Capitalism, for example, which is an edited collection, came out in the last five years. In my opinion, some of the best scholarship on the economic component of slavery I've ever read. Edward Baptist, the half has never been told. That is particularly compelling. Bonnie Martin's work. 
there's a lot of scholarship out there that contextualizes this stuff. But what I noticed was that professional historians, when they're speaking to each other, uh, take this records in local archives for granted. They're aware that these records exist, but as a county archivist who serves a lot of amateur historians, if you will, many, many are not aware that these records exist. And so I intended this article almost as a blueprint for them to construct narratives out of these records in their communities. And then, of course, they can see what works I use to help contextualize their research. But I was more interested in getting this information out there. One of the things I noticed, too, is that we're always taught to go to state archives, federal archives. But like you show in your article, county archives have this great wealth of documents essential to understanding a really complex topic that a lot of times goes untapped. Yeah. In addition to even understanding the issue, I think that there's also an intrinsic value to it as well. State archives are obviously a great place to go. University Special Collections. I would say Ancestry is probably getting well over 90% of the non-academic historian market, but we all know they don't have everything yet and they make mistakes. So I think it's important that people know that these resources exist in their community. Slavery was prevalent across all of Alabama, obviously more so in some areas than others, but it's there and it's everywhere. It's in every county courthouse, provided a courthouse fire or what have you didn't occur. It's everywhere. And because it is, these records provide a highly localized narrative of how slavery manifested itself in a particular community. And the other part of that is obviously ancestry, state archives, what have you, for ease of access and volume of information are king. But there's something to be said, even in this digital age, for the intrinsic value of archives and archival materials. And when, for me personally, when you hold an inventory of enslaved people, the power of that is almost beyond words. You're literally touching slavery in 2020. Not to be corny, but it brings home that Faulkner quote about the past as isn't the past, you know? So I think there's that aspect too, that people miss out on if they aren't aware that these records are in their communities and pass by them. Like you said, there are these resources in a lot of places, but you make a pretty good case for Montgomery County being a place to look, that it is a particularly important place to see how these records work to tell us about slavery. And what makes Montgomery County special? Well, even if you didn't know anything about slavery in Alabama, you probably guess that it was prevalent here in Montgomery County. And that's certainly true. In 1850, I think Montgomery County has the fourth largest enslaved population in the state. And by 1860, it has the third largest. Hmm. So the history of slavery is the history of Montgomery County, or at least a portion of it, I should say. And because of that, there's so much in terms of primary source material pertaining to slavery that as county archivist, I felt I wouldn't be doing my duty if I wasn't performing some sort of outreach. Uh, so hence this article, hence the Lantern Grant Project that you mentioned earlier. It's my feeling that counties in Alabama's Black Belt are probably going to be pretty similar to Montgomery County in terms of the volume. I, Because of my position, uh, I started with Montgomery County, and I think other scholars could probably pick this up in their counties and go forward. Yeah, and I think you've got a good template for kind of how to start thinking about that for other scholars. Yeah. A lot of our readers are not professionally trained, but they still want to dig into primary sources. And I think a, a big motivator of that is, like you were noting, genealogy. You have a source for understanding who our ancestors were and what they can tell us. Do you have any advice for anyone listening or any of our readers about how to do research in your archives or a similar archives? Yeah, you know, genealogists are pretty experienced in using things like wills, but in my little universe here in Montgomery County, I would say I see far fewer using real property records and estate records. Many don't know what an estate record is, which is obviously a person passes away and assets are divided, claims are settled, etc. 
But as we've already mentioned, in pre-Civil War Alabama, property includes enslaved people. So I would go for the low-hanging fruit in terms of easy access records like real property records and estate files. Unfortunately, one of the things that characterizes pre-Civil War real property records in Alabama are mortgages and deeds uh, collateralized by enslaved human beings. Mm -hmm. And often these records are naming individuals, they're giving ages. Estate files will often talk about occupation, health, and these are foundational legal records in the United States. Go for those first. As a closing question, do you have any projects that are ongoing you'd like to talk about or any ideas about a next project coming down the pipe? Absolutely. So in the intro, you mentioned the Lantern Project, and let me just plug that for a second. So the Lantern Project consists of the Montgomery County Archives, Mississippi State University, uh, Ole Miss, Delta State University, the Columbus Lounge Public Library, and the Historic Natchez Foundation. It is a three-year, $342,000 grant project funded by the National Archives to digitize pre-Civil War legal records in the South. So we're going through our records, digitizing, describing them, transcribing them, and that'll culminate in a database hosted by Mississippi State University. We're really proud of that. I think it's something that with the technology we now have is possible to do, and it's important that we do it. And we're really proud of it. We're one of three major grant projects funded by the National Archives, in addition to, I think, a couple dozen others. This is a multi-state, massive grant, so we're really proud that, that we're able to provide this for our patrons. Well, thank you, Dr. Hanbury, for speaking with us. And I would encourage anyone interested in reading Dr. Hanbury's comments on using local archives to better understand slavery. It's really important. It's a really accessible article to help anyone, even those without a lot of professional experience, understand how to access some really important documents. So, Dr. Hanbury, thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org. 